Welcome back to Building Better Businesses in ABA with me, Jonathan Mueller. It's a weekly podcast about the forces reshaping our autism services field. Learn from successful entrepreneurs, payers, investors, and leaders in applied behavior analysis. Thank you, kind listener, for letting me into your world today. Now on to the show. My guest today is Dr. Gina Chang. Gina is a BCBAD and licensed psychologist and the CEO of Autism Learning Partners. She started her career as a behavior technician 22 years ago and was captivated by the science of ABA and seeing children and families' lives forever improved by the science. She's on a journey to ensure excellence and access to care for more and more families. Gina, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Doctor. Oh, it's so great to be here with you. Well, to tell me, I mean, 22 years in the field, so you are like old school. Um, you've been with you've been with ALP since 2015, I think. But when was the moment, Gina, that you realized you wanted to make ABA your career? I didn't. I didn't actually know anything about ABA in college. I was a history and English major, and really left college uh, not having any idea what to do with my life. I think my parents were very nervous about me. I'd always loved working with children. Um, I'd actually thought I was going to be a pediatrician. Organic chem ensured that didn't work mm-hmm. out for me. And yeah, and so a, f- a friend said she was a psych major. And she said, well, I'm, I'm going to be working with autistic kids. And I literally thought first, she said, artist kids. I really didn't know about this population. But sure enough, I needed a part-time job. And they said, well, we'll hire you for, you know, $13 an hour. And if you do a good job, we'll sort of do it on a trial period. Um, And I don't know, there was just something about as I went through training and learned about the science, it made just a lot of intuitive sense. I think there were were things that just resonated. And then I still remember walking up to the door because it was all in home of of my first client. And I, I don't know, like I literally, I can picture it in my mind, knocking on the apartment door and going in and he and his family just changed my life in so many ways because I think, you know, I think I'd always wanted to be a sort of service and mission-oriented work was really important to me. But I think that combination of then watching change happen in front of you, so seeing words come out for the first time or things that had really been hard for a family, you know, being able to go to Target and him not throw a tantrum because he didn't get access to a preferred item. I mean, I watched the family's life change and things that were so painful become joyful. And I think for me, that combination of the scientific part, but then also the the actual change in family's life part was just something that I hadn't experienced before in any other sort of part of the world that I'd been dabbling in uh, from an educational career perspective. So yeah, I mean, it was that. Um, moment that I was just like, how do I do this? And how do I do more of it? And how do I become a supervisor? Um, so, yeah. I, I love that. Gosh, the things that were so painful become joyful. I think that speaks to the power of our science and our treatment, right? And what we, and the life-changing impacts we make on families. Part of what's so interesting to me about your story, you are a classic from mailroom to boardroom, <laughs> a kind of journey. And I want to hear more about your journey to becoming Autism Learning Partners CEO and, and ALP, for those who don't know, is one of the largest ABA providers in the country. Tell me more about that, Gina. Gosh, not not something that felt very intentional. If I'm honest, back when I was a behavior technician, it became about how do I become a supervisor? Because 
I got married young. We had very little money. And it was like, okay, well, if I can make, you know, $28 an hour or whatever they were paying the supervisor at the time, then that meant my husband and I could afford to live in Southern California. But then also just amazing doors were open. It's always a bit of, you know, luck, hard work, right? That combination. So I needed to get a master's to become a supervisor. And I, because I'd been a history and English major, no state school would take me if I didn't redo my undergrad coursework. I had to get a certain number of psych units to be able to go to Cal State LA, Cal State Northridge, right? great programs around me. And I, that felt unfathomable. And then interviewed with Claremont graduate that had a developmental psych program, but not really a BCBA program. And they said I could come in and sort of do that coursework as a part of my program. They would waive that requirement. But then I got connected to a woman who was doing research in ABA at Claremont McKenna, Dr. Charlotte. And I went to go meet with her. And she just said, I don't take master's students. I only take PhD students. So I was like, oh, crap. Go home. I like retake the GRE that I had not done well on. Change my application. She took one student that year. And it was me. And to this day, I don't know how that worked. But it really changed the course of my journey because now not only was I on path to get my master's, which was important to get the $28 an hour that I needed, but it just allowed me to dive fully into the space. I mean, and then I able to get my PhD, which really was not in the cards earlier. Like that would not have been, um, but I loved it. I actually really enjoyed the research. And, and then I was able to do pre-doc hours with her so I could get my license, which also wasn't really, that wasn't in the cards necessarily. Again, I was just trying to be the supervisor. So no, I think that that was certainly just a massive door that got opened that to this day, I'm so grateful for. And then I think I just, I really fell in love with operations, which I think not necessarily all clinicians are really into, but I spent uh, almost a decade at autism spectrum therapies, which was acquired by Learn just before I left. But there I really learned, I think a few things, like one, just operations have to be tight to do what we do, especially in-home, right? I mean, it is literally like UPS meets clinical care, what you're trying to accomplish. So I think that work and, and really a woman named uh, Dr. Andrea Ridgway was both incredibly instrumental for me, both in operations and in clinical development. She taught me so much about what I understand about clinical care. I did a lot of work with brief functional analyses when I was there, but then also opened up services for areas of California that didn't really have great access to care and loved that, like loved the idea that I was going to build infrastructure around training and access that hadn't existed. That really was a spark for me in that time. Those 10 years were really big for me as far as things that I'm deeply passionate about. Is this so crazy how ex post facto looking back, yeah. it can feel like everything like fell into place to make yes. it happen. But like the reality of so many of our journeys, it's wow, this little moment changed where the trajectory went. But you know, I, I want to probe more on on operations. And and you cannot be more correct, Gina, that particularly for in-home, but for any type of ABA services, if you don't have the tightest operations, yeah. like you cannot be successful. And especially in this time of compressed uh, margins and increasing wage rates. And we've known each other for, I think, almost a couple of years now. Yeah. But when we chatted at the CASP CEO event, I was just blown away for how you brought this operational mindset just to describe the work that, that you do and ALP was doing. But that doesn't get taught in schools. 
doesn't even no. get taught really in, in MBA programs. So how did you build your really keen operational skill sets and the mindsets that you knew you needed to be a, a successful leader? Yeah, um, man, and it is, it's, it's the same thing where you just have different people coming to your life at sort of different key moments. So again, I think Dr. Ridgway was like, I think what was so clear in our work together was you have to manage the relationship between your sort of supervisor cost and your behavior technician cost. One piece of advice I'll give to anybody that relationship and the caseload dynamics that will, from my perspective, with how we are paid today, right? They're, 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 the context you're in is, is really drives the ability to build sustainable businesses. So I think that was probably a, a big nugget of truth I had that I took when I came in as chief of clinical operations at, at ALP. But I would say the next big piece was I worked then really closely with the CEO that brought me in to ALP, who was just really great. One of the first things we did was put in place a balanced scorecard. And so for us, that has, you know, a people column, an operations column, a clinical quality column, and a growth column. So those for us at the time, again, all your context, right? At the time I was landing at ALP, the business was in not a good spot. We needed some real growth to balance overhead costs. And we needed to really root the team in clinical excellence and operational excellence. And so that scorecard was so critical to that. And then it was just every month. I mean, that routinized focus on execution. And they were tough conversations. So, you know, you don't transform a business by all good stuff, right? There's going to be hard moments where there are honest conversations about where the performance of the business is going. And I think that those things for me were so instrumental in what has become a toolkit that I really depend on in how we lead the business. Mm. Tell me some more about the balance scorecard is, is this concept that's been around, I think, for yes. at least a couple decades, right? Absolutely. But it's much newer to our field. I want you to tell me a little bit more about that. And, and also this idea that the importance of um, managing that relationship between your supervisor costs mm -hmm. and your frontline workers. It's, what, what does that actually look like day to day? So I think as far as the, the balanced scorecard, I think for us, it, it set the tone for a monthly review of the business at the regional level. So, I mean, I'd say that's a big part of it. Um, but you're right. That other question you asked, those metrics all flowed onto the, the balanced scorecard. So just to dive more into that, what we really focus on, I mean, and we call it gross margin. Other people will call it lots of different things, but it's really how, you know, you can look at a BCBA's product, call it productivity, hours they bill, care they provide, all of that good vernacular. But honestly, that for most of us, given the landscape of the reimbursement rate, because at least in our organization, they're typically only about 60 to 70% billable, right? So there are other things they do. Um, that depending on how you're being reimbursed, that's the level of productivity or reimbursed time we get from them. And because of that, typically what they're doing is really paying for their costs. They're not generating anything that supports the rest of the functioning of the business. Um, if you were to have that position, say, Bill, at 90, 95%, time. So if there's someone out there getting 35, 37 hours out of productivity a week out of their BCBAs, God bless you, we are not, then that probably could work as far as that being your focus. But for us, because that isn't, we give them time for other things. 
most of the margin of the business is made off of the behavior technician hour. In this season, that's obviously been compressed a lot. And so there's, you know, work we're doing there. But that for us has been sort of that understanding. So we want to pay our behavior technicians well. And so in order to do that, you have to really watch how many behavior technician hours you can have per BCBA. That relationship becomes more and more important in being sustainable. I think in a world where we could imagine really great reimbursement rates can be less like someone, actually a, a guy at AST, Rob Health, once said to me, when the, when the tide is high, you don't know how much shit is at the bottom of the ocean. And it is really true. Right? I don't think about that statement a lot. Like when, you know, those of us, and I wasn't in operations at this time, but I mean, there was a day when we were regularly being paid 90, 100 bucks an hour for BT work, right? That's not the world we live in. This is not going back 15 years, 20 years. And so, yeah, then I think you can do all sorts of things, right? Your BCBA don't have to bill. It doesn't matter what the caseload looks like. You can have a lot of fun. Um, but that's, that's not our reality. And if people have the same sort of reimbursement profile that we do, which I think is not the lowest, but not the greatest, you have to watch those to be able to then provide other really amazing things to your team members, to your families, right? To afford um, the technology you need, to afford somebody else to do your scheduling and contracting, with all those things that clinician wants to do. You've got to watch those dynamics to have the resources left over to invest. This is so true. From when we started Ascend five and a half, six years ago, we said the same thing, like the true measures of productivity around caseload size defined specifically as the number of direct therapy hours in this pyramid under a BCBA. And so I, I love that your mind works that way. And like we're a human services business, right? We don't make widgets. So unlike a UPS or some of these others where we could like tweak some levers. Right? We, so this is the, I believe, hardest yeah. thing that yes. organizations have to do to 100%. be successful, even harder than like the hard clinical delivery of treatment. So what feedback do you have for ABA providers when it comes to increasing utilization and just making yeah. sure the providers are working as efficiently and effectively as possible and in a supportive environment? Yeah. Um, look, first, I'm not going to lie. Like, I think it's really hard. You know, I, I think for us, and I don't know that we do it well or always do it well, but I, I think it's been about also just trying to be as transparent about this realities. I actually read this great Simon Sinek quote that said, like, transparency isn't telling everybody all the details, but it's telling them sort of why the context for why the decision is being made. And I think that, you know, there is feedback I would give is I just, I think giving your team levels of transparency, I actually think a lot of humans, if they had the same information you had, would actually make a lot of the same decisions. It's not people like most of the supervisors we have or then when, when I talk to them they get, do we always do a good job of making sure they understand the why and that includes the financial why you know I think sometimes those of us who are clinicians would much rather talk about our why clinically and um, the amazing clinical work and and we do a lot of that but it's also about explaining the financial component or, or making sure they understand how the business works and so that was a part of that scorecard, that was a lot of what we were doing month over month was actually equipping the director so that they could communicate with their supervisors like, this is how the business works. It's not like we need you to build 25 hours just or 27 hours just to 
do it. Yes, that maps onto clinical care, right? If you're doing the 10 to 20%, in per, I mean, it, it lines up, but we do monitor it also because that supports the sustainability of the business. And that that is our reality. And let me then walk you through that, you know? So I think for me, it's, I would say it's trying to bring people along with understanding the business and not trying to hide that from them. I do think sometimes as clinicians, we don't want to BCBAs to have to get caught up in that stuff, right? Or we we don't want to feel like they need to worry themselves. And they shouldn't, but I do think if they don't know the why behind the full story, you know, you can share the clinical, but the full story of the why, I think we do ourselves a disservice in in their willingness to come along. But again, I don't know that we always do that well, but that's our intent. But you've pointed something really critical. And I think you know, I had a mentor tell me once, this is the hard leadership work that we get to do. That is the teaching, not not like just telling a, cl- a clinician yeah. or one of our team members, right, this is what you do, but like giving them that context, teaching them the why, being a teacher to help them understand how certain decisions have to be made. This is so critical. Why do you think as a field that we've shied away from that? Is it because we haven't wanted to expose clinicians to the harder financial realities, right? Or what drives that? No, I know my own journey, you know, and I know that even for me at times, like I have my own struggles with overextending myself to care for people, right? Whether that's in my personal life or in my work life, I will give a lot to do right by somebody, to get it right, right? And I think sometimes that can sort of overgeneralize to like, finances and budgets. And and I don't doubt that there are amazing clinicians running businesses today are either running at a loss or bleeding their personal finances because they are trying to do right um, and because they will give of themselves to. And I, I think, you know, that that whole notion of boundaries allow you to give appropriately. I actually think that's true in sort of your own emotional and cognitive and sort of psychological development. And it's sort of true financially. To me, that almost feels like a bit of a universal truth. And I think that's been my own journey. It's actually really appropriate to not give outside of what is sustainable so that you can keep giving and you can keep doing it. And so I, I think sometimes... You know, we feel badly saying, no, we're not going to do that, you know, because you could say it's in, in best interest of client care. Or it's the best interest of the staff. So I think then we try, but it's like, no, we just, we have to live within the reality and give the right feedback. I think sometimes we almost absorb, like we get squeezed rather than, no, payers need to pay us more for this work. I mean, I think I've been, it's been really hard. We've made some tough decisions to leave markets. And mm-hmm. I never will do that flippantly. But at the same time, how can you send a message to a payer or to a state that doesn't want to fund services when you just keep taking, when you just make yourself, your team members squeeze mm-hmm. because they won't show up? I just, I don't know. So it's painful because obviously then there's a client or a patient, but I do feel strongly that We've got to figure out a feedback loop that puts the accountability on on payers and states to show up for these patients, not just on the provider being squeezed in the middle. It's so brilliantly said, Gina, the universal truth. I'm hearing quality costs more. 
right? And if payers and states are are willing to put up with a low reimbursement rate, then like, what are they going to get? You're going to get services provided essentially by like staffing agencies, right? And just sort of like home health care, but you send someone in and not trained and not well supervised. Quality costs more, full stop. You know, one of the things I think I've always been reluctant in my 11 years in the field, I'm not a clinician. And so when I approach these kinds of conversations about uh, utilization and productivity and margins, like this worry in the back of my head is, shoot, like they're just going to see me as this MBA that only wants like to make money. And right. so I've had to over-index and a lot yeah. of times like way too over-index on sure. not having sure. those conversations, no, absolutely. which taken me away from that. But I, I love the sense of like, hey, we, we can't over-give, right? Quality costs more. And we need to be upfront and transparent with our, our team members about the dynamics of our business. Like they deserve that. One of the things you and I really agree on, um, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. There's this debate in our field these days about like private equity versus non-private equity. I don't know. I, I, I think it's sad and, and at best it's just distracting, but at worst, it's actually dangerously destructive. And I love, you told me at one point, Gina, like that it's, it's about the choices you make and how you run the business. That's what counts. Can you tell me more, like what you mean by that? Sure. Um, yeah. And I, again, right, you, you only can speak from the context like lived, right? So when I joined ALP, there was another private equity firm that held the organization. And then there was a transfer of ownership. And then the current team I've been with since 2018. So for, I know them very well. And I, I stepped into this CEO role in 20. So, so really have gone through the journey of COVID and all of it, right? The great resignation. So I've, I've walked with these humans through just really tough times. And I think for me and my experience is that they are looking as much expertise and leadership from the management team um, more than anything. So my experience has been them being highly supportive of decisions and approaches, but also requiring a level of transparency with right? So in the same way, I need to be transparent with my supervisors to bring them along. It's required transparency with them to bring them along. And sometimes that means hard conversations with them about, no, you can't just do that. You don't, you don't understand what we do. But, but then also trust, right? I'm a big believer that in, when we talk about integrity or trust, it's all about say, do. Like you say something, then you do it. And I think on both sides, you, you have to demonstrate that. And so I think they've seen us say what we think needs to be done, do it, and then see the right result, right? Whether that's improved retention. I mean, it's not always just uh, financial, but it, it is also that. Um, and so I think from my perspective, I have been really respected when I've sort of when I disagreed um, and, and, and yet also have really appreciated, you know, there are some things they see differently. They were some of the first people that when COVID hit, were like, how do we make sure BCBAs don't get hit by this? So it is, it is hard for me to see a lot of the commentary or the perception because I just think it's really misguided in the sense of, are there chances that there are some PE firms that are driving poor business practices from a clinical perspective? I'm sure there are. But in the same, as we've discussed, in the same light, have I seen really poor ethical and clinical practices by privately owned, clinician owned entities? A hundred percent. And so I think for me, it's just not about 
the funding mechanism or financing mechanism. It is about the choices you're making every day around your business. And all of us, whether you're not-for-profit, private equity-backed, or um, an individual owner, you still need to run your business at a reasonable level of sustainability, no matter how you cut it. And, and at least my experience is I'm not being asked to run at anything beyond just what is appropriate to the reimbursement rates we're getting and the cost to deliver the care and that we're not going the wrong way. So I'm probably oversimplifying it a little bit, but I think from my perspective, I'm not really sure who we're referencing when we try to make it so binary or polarizing. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think one of the ways that this plays out, I could be totally wrong on this, but let me throw it out there. And I love your feedback. One of the ways this plays out is, um, you know, our field still operates with the mentality and mindset of, cool, we're in the medical model when it comes to reimbursement, but we don't have to be in the medical model when it comes to compliance and all of the other things that every other healthcare organization and every other healthcare discipline has to do. So it's like, we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. And, you know, there's going to be an office of inspector general report that comes out later in 2023, where they just went and did an audit of all state Medicaid ABA programs. And I think that's going to be a come to Jesus moment for our field. But, but this idea that we've been under indexing and under investing as a field on compliance that, that everywhere else in healthcare, you know, those investments have to be made. And I do believe that realization, um, that we can't have our cake and eat it too, is going to lead to more consolidation. It's going to lead to those organizations that have invested over time in compliance and everything from billing and revenue cycle compliance to clinical compliance to, I mean, you know, HIPAA compliance, you name it, right? The entire yeah. compliance infrastructure. Those are the ones who are going to make it through this next leg. And so I think that's one thing. I, one thing I've learned about private equity, they're actually super conservative, right? Because you're dealing with investors' money. You talk California pension funds and elsewhere. So they're super conservative and, and that conservatism translates to dialed in compliance infrastructure. But I don't know. What do you think is, is the future of compliance in our field? And is there going to be a come to Jesus moment for ABA providers? You know, it, it's so interesting, right? This is one of those moments where like, again, I feel like I keep saying this, but I feel like I know my world, right? But you're right, right? One of the first things when our private equity team came in was like, we have compliance monthly calls. We have, I mean, so I definitely think that is of absolute value for them. And also, I think pushing us forward around outcomes and data development, right? Obviously, we've always taken data on the patients we're providing care for, and but they understand what technology can also do in a way that as a clinician, that's not my natural kind of wheelhouse, right? But we're in the process, we've built a data warehouse, we're in the process of refreshing that warehouse. But I just think that to me is also what they bring. But you're right, 100%. So on the compliance side, but then also just how levels of accountability are going to change. So yes, we do spend a lot of time on that. I will be honest, when I hear that there's still providers that don't necessarily take data in every session or, I mean, that that does kind of blow my mind. But that for me has been an expectation for a long time. I mean, in California, we, we were being audited a lot, even at my prior company. So yeah, we have to be accountable for what we do. And I, I think that reckoning is still, they're still struggling with access. Mm -hmm. And I think we have not yet dealt with the reckoning of the quality of the care being. That's a good point. Like there's, you know, we exist in our environment, right? And clearly with a one in 36 diagnosing rate that just came out from the CDC in April, there's still true access issues that haven't been solved. And that I think is 
been part of what the context of what's pushed the can down the road on on compliance. But um, but yeah, you know, there's uh, <laughs> I, I I feel like um, all of this comes back around to doing these things is for the sake of our kiddos, right? And then, yeah, it happens to be good business practices. It happens to be sound financial discipline, but it's for, it's for the sake of our kids and those we serve. Well, Gina, what's one thing every ABA business owner should start doing and one thing to stop doing? I do think really being transparent about what it means to run this business. I don't think that means you have to give like all the little details, but I, I do think having folks understand I really think you will bring a lot of people with you if they understand the journey that you're on and what you're trying to accomplish and what what that would then also give access to if they helped you accomplish it. The only other thing I'd say too is I also think that invites, they might have a better way of solving it. I mean, I just think a, a more creative way of solving it then. You know, I think I've talked to some other CEOs or in my journey where it, it seems like they'll lock in like, well, you know, this is what it has to be. And that's not true. If you were just talking to more of the people and letting them know what the problem was, that is just a way that I lead that I think is really critical to this, and especially in this season. Um, and then what should they stop doing? I think we should stop feeling badly that we're trying to build sustainable businesses. I mean, and maybe that's just more me, but I think we want to take care of everyone all the time. And I don't think that's possible. And I think it's okay to draw limits of what you can and can't do. And it's okay if that limit isn't losing money, but that limit is like, I can appropriately pay the interest on my debt or whatever. I mean, I just think, you know, it doesn't have to come at personal cost to you. Beautifully said. Well, where can people find you online, Gia? Um... Gosh, I'm not actually great online, but LinkedIn, I'm definitely on LinkedIn. Um, you know, our website, autismlearningpartners.com. Those are probably the two best places. Back on. Well, are you ready for the hot take questions? I, yes, yes. <laughs> Here we go. Buckle up. All right, you, you're on your deathbed. What's the one thing you want to be remembered for? Okay, so Brene Brown has this quote, strong back, soft front, wild heart. And that is it. Strong back, soft front. Wild heart. Oh, well, as a, a fellow Brene Brown devotee, I love that. There's also like a mullet context somewhere in there, strong and like long in the oh. back. And like <laughs> oh, I don't God. know. That's what they came to buy. This is like the 21st century mullet. I, that's beautiful. I love it. What, what's your most important self care practice, Gina? Um, I'd say walking and like meditation, prayer. Those. What mm. a favorite song and or music genre. I feel like this will just reveal my age. One by U2. I mean, there are quite a few U2 songs that would make the top list, but one one is probably up there. They're they're absolute genius. I gotta ask you, I put you on a spot. Yeah. You've got kids. Have you seen the movie Sing Two? Yes. Yes. Where and no spoilers for the audience, but if you haven't seen it, just go freaking yes. watch. It doesn't matter yes. if you've seen Sing One. Yeah. Bono plays. Yeah. <laughs> There's an animal, I should say. Where Bono plays the voice. It's a lion. Yeah. And it is just, I was like in goosebumps and tears through much of the movie, like listening to all this stuff that I grew up with. It was so good. Yes. Yes. Right. Gina, what's the one thing you'd tell your 18 year old self? Well, don't be so afraid. Well, you can only wear one style of footwear. What would it be? Running shoes. <laughs> 
only because I really love walking. <laughs> so highly functional. Well, Gita, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and all your experience. I appreciate you. I oh, appreciate it. Thanks, Jonathan. Hey, kind listener. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, can you do me a favor? Give me a rating on your favorite podcast channel. It helps more values line people like you find the pod. Till next time, peace. Peace.